You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuts. All right, friends. Hey, if you really want to get to know someone, you've got a couple of options. You can take them camping. That's usually a good way to get to know who someone really is. Or my preferred method is to go on a global trip with them where you and them together, especially when you're Westerners and wealthy, where you're plunged into global poverty together. That's to me where you really get to know somebody. What's their ability to connect with people? How much are they trying to shrink pain so they can fix it themselves? You know, the whole Western fix it thing. And so January 2020, right before COVID kind of doomed us all, I got this incredible opportunity to go on a global trip to Guatemala. Uh, if for, for me, it, it, you had me at hello. Jimmy Miato was going to be there. He's been a hero of mine for years. Dr. Henry Cloud was going to be there. There was also going to be a guy I'd heard about and never met named Steve Carter. And uh, I was really intrigued by Steve. And as I'm often famous on this podcast for my long introductions while my guest awkwardly waits for me to shut up, um, I remember in 2018 the whole Willow Creek shakedown and, uh, you know, not being involved, just watching some of those early family meetings and just feeling the absolute pain of it as Bill Hybels doubled down against his accusers. Uh, many of the elders kind of took Bill's side. And what I, what I remember about it is, is Bill making what I think was probably a pretty big error of declaring that the people accusing him of this are, are lying and trying to take him down. And I remember at the time thinking, oh man, now, now it's a simple yes or no, like who's, who's telling the truth. And I remember this young guy on stage named Steve Cardo looking at him there and thinking, what, what must it be like for some of these staff who are stepping into this leadership role and now they're in an absolute quagmire, not of their own doing. And uh, my respect for Steve went through the roof before I ever met him because of the way he navigated what felt to me like an almost impossible situation. Just how do you navigate with integrity and courage with your dream role and what's going on? So the chance to get to go on this trip with Steve, get to know him, get to walk into tiny houses with him and and serve people and listen to them together. My respect for Steve only increased. So I was thrilled when he came out with a, a book, The Thing Under the Thing, The Thing Underneath the Thing. It's a great book. Uh, as I was telling Steve before we hit record, of course, it's right in the, my favorite topic. And man, oh man, it's, it's a fantastic uh, journey into what's going on in your life, how to figure out what's going on and how to, how to be healthy. So Steve, with that three-minute introduction, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you so much, Steve. You know how much I appreciate you. And I'll never forget uh, seeing a very tall Aussie walk down the aisle of the bus and just just sit right down next to me at the very back. And, and you just started peppering me with questions. And I was like, oh, this guy, this guy, this guy just likes to cannonball into the deep end. And <laughs> I was like, I, I like this guy. And so, uh, man, I, it's, it's kind of created a, a mutual love uh, since that moment that I've been so grateful to get to know you and um, just so appreciate what you're all about. Great. Well, your book, you know, it's it's your own journey, but it's really, I think, you're inviting us into our own journey of figuring out uh, what's going on underneath the surface in us, 
how do we know when we've reached the end of ourselves and what's showing up? And uh, so I wanted to share what's going on in my life and, and see if you can help me make sense of it. Uh, I've had two incidents in the last month where I've gone from zero to 100 in rage. Um, and it both times has caught me by surprise and I've not been able to control it. And it's been like a, a one to two minute thing. So the first situation was I was driving on the interstate on the merge lane. Uh, so I'm, I'm coming down, I'm speeding up in my car, getting ready to merge with interstate traffic. There's a Real big, quick, are you on the 25? On the I-25 North. Oh yeah, that makes total sense. Okay, that just that's a construction nightmare. Just, just for disaster. context, it's a disaster. Okay, gotcha. Yep, and, and also some of the merge lanes on 25 are really short. Fortunately, I drive a Swedish wagon. So we're fine. I've got the turbocharged Saab, but I'm driving down uh, that and there's a semi-trailer going full speed in, in the interstate lane. So I can either gun it and get in front of him and I think make him pretty uncomfortable, or I can just ease off the accelerator five mile an hour. He'll, he'll kind of cruise by and I'll slot in behind him. So of course, I'm a courteous human. I do the second. The lady behind me speeds up and almost bumps me. And then she has one hand on the horn Somehow she's flicking her high beams and flipping me off. Like it was a, it was a trifecta of multitasking that I got to give her credit for. So she's like aggressively trying to get me to gun it. And then I'm just pointing to the guy with my Christian finger, not my middle finger. I'm just pointing to the truck like, hey, like, let's cool it. So she then, uh, instead of letting me go over, she goes over behind the truck, blocks me in. And now I'm either running off into the, uh, dirt or have to slam on the brakes. Okay, that's what happened. I'm then flooded with rage. I then start chasing her down. Like, I'm out of control. And I, probably for 30 seconds to a minute, she's in a RAV4. I'm in a Saab Turbo that I've personally modified. It's 300 horsepower. So it can, get, it can go. And I'm chasing her down thinking, what, what are you doing, man? Like, so that's incident one, number one. The second one happened this week. I was arriving back from Chicago. I, I was in Chicago doing some work. Plane gets delayed next morning, lack of sleep, uh, early morning. And because the plane got cancer with storms, the second plane is packed. So I'm on row 37 of 39. I'm at the back of the plane. We land in Denver. Lisa's circling the airport waiting for me. And the family, two rows back, try to get ahead of me to get off the plane first. Everyone's seated. We're all seated. It's a good five, 10 minutes before it's our turn to get up. I block the aisle with my arm like freaking Gandalf. And I'm very calm, but I'm like, you are, you shall not pass. And then they exchange death bombs. Uh, but it was the same thing, Steve, like the zero to rage. What's going on in me? What's, what's happening there? What's my problem? Man, well, first off, I love how honest and human you are. That's one of the, the greatest pieces about you because, you know, I feel like every time we get on, the, on a call together, I feel like we're able to share stories that just are really human. Um, I always have present tense stories for you. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. What's going on? Well, I think, I think what's amazing is in the first story, you named a word. I think a word that's very, very true to who you are and to the way that you conduct yourself. Um, in my opinion, that word um, would probably be in the top five words for how you arrange and orient your life. And I think the second, the second story uh, was also a violation of that word. 
And if your listeners were listening and they go back, they'll hear the one word and it was the word courtesy. And you are, you are someone who demonstrates courtesy. Now, in baseball, we talk about this as an unwritten rule. Basically, if you know, I'm playing uh, you know, at Wrigley Field and someone from the Colorado Rockies pitches me the ball and I end up hitting this slider way over left field for a home run, I watch it, I flip my bat, and I dance around the bases scoring a run for my team. It doesn't matter if I face that pitcher in two months or in seven years. He has every right to bean me because there is an unwritten rule that you are not supposed to watch the ball go over and flip your bat when you hit a home run. It's unwritten. And what I think happened was in this car, you had someone who violated unwritten value that you think and I think should be a cultural norm, but it wasn't. Someone behind you was like, uh, look at this guy in a sob. Like... He doesn't know what he's doing. Like, she may have had Swedish jealousy. She may yeah. not be able to manage. Like <laughs> totally. the Swedish wagon is magnificent. What she didn't know was that thing had been supercharged. We'll say <laughs> that right now. But like, you know, and, and I think what ends up happening is, is when we get triggered, it is oftentimes we have been trained just by our decision making is it's permission to escape, permission to run to something else, to allow our brains to be hijacked to go and think different thoughts or different stories about other people, to act in a way that that feels really antithetical to who we are. But I also think when we get triggered, there's something underneath that, that it's exposing either a pain point or a value that we hold really, really dearly. And somehow we feel like someone just said, I don't actually think uh, being courteous matters. And because I don't think being courteous matters, what I'm saying is I don't think you matter. Yeah. I, don't think, I don't think your time matters on the plane. And I don't think your life matters on the I-25. I just don't think you matter. And I think if we started to go underneath that, there's probably stories where you've probably felt that growing up in, in Australia, probably having moments where someone did that and you're like, oh my goodness, like, what? Why, why would someone make me feel small? And so all of these moments where we get triggered, I have found, and my counselor will say this, which I absolutely love. He'll say, Steve, when you find yourself getting hysterical, yeah. it's most likely and most often historical. Yeah. And there's some historical part, whether a value you were taught or an experience that you had where this part of you got minimized. Or this decision or action by another minimize that value that you were taught to be and holds so sacred. So that's kind of what I, I would just diagnose it going, what, what's underneath that? And hey, what is it about that word courteous? Because when you said that, I was like, oh, there's something there. That's what you're listening for. Yeah, that's so interesting. That's, that's the work I've been doing is, is this courtesy idol I have. It feels like an idol. It's interesting when something I think is would make the world better becomes like an idolatrous thing what what's caught me off guard steve is obviously you know i'm the managing anxiety guy and i'm pretty good at knowing my triggers and therefore preempting them but this was this like zero to hundred in a in a split second uh and then what i'd love your help with is i i move okay so it makes sense when you say i'm feeling diminished or some historical thing that totally rings true 
But it's the way I move into judge and jury and executioner is what was most disturbing to me was I felt a need to protect the back 10 rows of the airplane. Like I, I'm going to step in for all of us, kind of this weird martyr thing. And then with the lady behind me, and, and I think the other common thing with both of these stories is they both gained about a minute's worth of time. Like, right? Like they, they violate courtesy for the sake of a, a small gain. But what, what I'm seeking the Lord on now is why am I then moving into judge and jury? Is that because if I feel minimized, I now need to make myself bigger? What's your take on that? Well, that's a great that's a great point. I think in some ways, one of the greatest strengths about you, though, Steve, is you are a protector. You know, you you are someone that really wants to help people um, walk in health and wholeness and truth. And so, so I think anytime that someone's violating that, then you're you you know that has a cause and effect for that could harm other people. I think part of you runs into that. So, so it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's interesting sometimes when people get triggered and it, it goes to a, what feels very, very negative. It's often the shadow side of something that's really, really beautiful yeah. that you, that you use to actually protect the flock in Colorado, to protect companies when you're coaching, to protect people from their own destructive patterns. So, so one part is I go, okay, is there, is there another side to that? That really is true to who I am. But the bigger question I think that you're asking is, why did it get so tweaked to run to the negative in this yeah. moment? You and, know what I mean? so quickly, like I, lo- I lost all cognitive ability. Yeah. And, and I, that for me, I think has been, um, you know, I, I would just be curious of what was going on in the, the days before. You know what I mean? What was, yeah. what was going on with the flight? You mentioned that you were at 39. Um, yeah, you know, flights at seven to thirty nine. Yeah, yeah, like some 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 a flight probably got delayed. You know, were you know were you on a long long trip away? Like, what's going on in Colorado in your own life? Right, I'd been gone nine days, and I got to O'Hare Airport, which I believe is Satan's playground, at four p.m. And then they kept delaying the flight to eleven p.m. till they finally canceled it. Then four thousand of us are trying to find a hotel, and then I'm back at five thirty in the morning. So definitely sleep deprived. Excited to see my family. Yeah. Okay. So I just, I, in, in those moments, typically at, you know, a, at, if, if I'm at O'Hare and I've been there multiple times when it's been delayed and had to, you know, find a hotel room to, and just, you sit there and you go, this is outside of my control. There's a great, yeah. there's a great mathematical leadership formula uh, started by Jack Canfield that was adopted by a lot of college football coaches. E plus R equals O. And events plus responses equals outcomes. Yeah. We, don't, we don't control the events. The events happen to us. The only thing that we control is our response. And depending on how we choose to respond, because when we react, we're just reenacting the past. But when we choose to respond, we're, we're able to lift up and see, this is the kind of person I want to be in this moment. But the events plus the, a healthy response is going to create a healthier outcome. And so there's moments like when I'm realizing, and it doesn't happen very often, to be honest, like I had the, the, the amount of health and kind of like spiritual awareness of what's really going on, where there's moments where I need to start my day. Like I'm, I, I am a better human when I have hiked in the morning. I'm a better human when I've had space and, and silence and solitude. I'm a better human when I start my day with a welcome prayer because I get aware of my feelings. I'm a better human 
when I have had good connection with my wife and my kids. I'm a better human when life actually goes exactly the way I want it. And that happens so rarely. But when, when, I, when I realize is when this stuff comes at me and it doesn't go, uh, my dad used to always say to me, Steve, change adversity into opportunity. And this is an opportunity for you to grow. This is an opportunity for you to heal. This is an opportunity for you to become. This is an opportunity for you. And, and I think that's the piece in me is realizing um, usually my outbursts, and there's, there's a lot of them, um, usually my outbursts, I'm looking at a moment of bad fruit that got exposed by being cut off. Yeah. But it wasn't, it wasn't about the, that woman in the RAV4. It was really about 48 hours before, and it was about a conversation. So just recently, I, I was on a phone call, um, and I kind of got put into the middle of a situation, and I, I had given some coaching to someone. They didn't follow through on the coaching, but because I had that, this call, uh, it, it kind of seemed like to another friend that I, I was in agreement with his, this other person's assessment of them. So he was calling and I'm like, Oh, that's not what I said. But I, but I felt, I felt like misunderstood. And then I'm trying to be present with my kids. And I just, it was a harder day. And I went upstairs and I was like, I'm just going to take a nap. And then like, I end up like realizing, Oh man, a buddy of mine's calling and I just need to be affirmed. I need some sense of connection. So instead of taking a nap, I take this call and I'm on the call for 90 minutes away from my family. They think I'm taking a nap. They realize I'm on the phone. And, you know, my son just says to me later that night said, Hey, dad, I, I, I'm okay with you taking a nap. Cause I, I knew that you must've been tired, but you told me you were doing one thing, but you, 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 why'd you take that call? And I just said, well, honestly, I just had a hard day. And I, as I'm looking back right now, I I felt like I I needed that phone call to just kind of lift me up a little bit. And my son, who's 13, and I give him credit, give all credit to my wife in this, who's highly emotionally intelligent. But my son just says, I wish you would have been able to get that affirmation from us and not need to look outside the home. Mm. And, and I was like, oh my goodness. But again, the, what my kids saw was me on the phone, but what really was the genesis of that moment was another phone call 12 hours before that. So all that to say is I try to, I try to be very aware of, okay, this happened, but my reaction, that was churning within hours or days before, whether it being minimized in a moment, whether it not going the way that I wanted. Maybe I wanted to be home to see my wife and my kids and I couldn't, it didn't go my way. And because of that, now what? And I didn't have the courage to deal with that in real time in a healthy way. And it just is like simmering and simmering and simmering. And then Rob Forewoman gave you a nice opportunity and invitation to release and react rather than respond. That's, that's for me, the work that I've been trying to really wrestle with is it's yes, the bad fruit, but where did that, where did that actually begin? And how do I catch that in real time? Um, and, and yeah, in, in more ways. I really like that. Even listening to what you just said about crazy Rav four woman, as I have come to lovingly call it too. <laughs> There's also something for those of us who are in ministry 
right or wrong, we are paid to be nice. And I don't believe that's true, like to my core. But I wonder too how much is I don't have an outlet to be human. Like, uh, that's not quite true. But it's like, I, I know when I talk to people, maybe they have a criticism and they want to meet with me or uh, maybe I have to have a difficult conversation with a staff member. My words carry so much weight as the lead pastor. I have, it feels like I'm always constantly shrinking myself down to have a fair fight, if that makes sense. Like, I, what's weird, Steve, right, is so many people see us with all this power that we don't see ourselves with. It wasn't until you just said it that it occurred to me. I wonder if, if part of it is I, I just don't get much outlet to lose it. You know, like I, to, just to lose it with someone, which most people do most of the time, but we really don't get to do that. I don't know. I just, that just came up on the spot. I know we're a little ways off your book at this point, but that was no. an interesting kind of aha moment there. That, well, the, pres- the pressure to, are you a musician at all? I'm really off the map here. No, so, so well, I, I not not necessarily, but I was in an improv punk band in college, and we would travel around and play. But like we we never practiced. We just we so, just talked somehow, our way into gigs and just played. Somehow this makes a lot of sense right now. <laughs> You're not a musician and yet improv punk. So there is the thing in music called a compressor, and it, and it and it squashes the highs and it raises up the lows. And sometimes pastoral ministry feels like that. Like I'm I'm compressed. And I wonder if there was an outlet piece to this as well. Like, here's a stranger and I can safely chase her down and just have a rage fest in my car. Well, and I think, I think too, you know, for me, you know, I was, in, I was an athlete, you know, playing basketball. And competition was something that I had learned how to channel the pain of my childhood. I could take it out on uh, an opponent. I could take it out on the soccer field. And you know what I mean? I could be nice off the field. I could go play pickup basketball. and like you know, just, just like get work out that emotion on the court. I think then you get into ministry and a lot of us, we, we weren't taught the tools that I feel like that you have been teaching that you've taught me through your work, but I don't feel like there, there, there were places that we knew how to, how to kind of place that. And so it's just kind of lived within us and we're not, you know, and, we're not trying to be people who are competitive in, in church work. You know, we're not trying yeah. to be like competitive with like people. Like we're, we're trying to do this work, but that's still within us. And Steve Kerr, he's the coach of the, the Golden State Warriors. Oh, and yeah. Legend. Legend, yeah. you know. And so he, he was asked once, tell me the two most competitive people you've ever been around. And he said, oh, that's easy. Michael Jordan and Steph Curry. But then he said this word. He, he says, what, what's fascinating is that both of them are so competitive, but they are motivated by two different things. Michael Jordan was motivated by anger and Steph Curry is motivated by joy. And I, I just realized like I was raised on Jordan. I was raised on, you know, take it out on your opponent, be angry. And, and I think there's something in our subconscious where I can't take it out on my congregation. I can't take it out on my staff but I can take it out on crazy raw four lady. Cause I don't yeah. know her, you know what I mean? Or I can take it out. You know, sometimes you see people have burner accounts on Twitter, you know, like they can take <laughs> right. it out over here and not be <laughs> yes. found. But I think the, the real work is going, how do I, how do I actually live a life where I go like Steph Curry and go, I get to do this. Yeah. Like I, I'm, I'm going to make every effort to be the fullest, healthiest, most whole, holy human I can be. 
And I'm actually going to do it with joy and enjoy my life and enjoy what I've been entrusted to. And I, and again, that, that feels far away at times for me. And at seasons, it feels very, very close, but man, that is, that's the, that's a vision that I go, gosh, like I want, I want to be more that kind of person rather than everything's a threat. Everything is trying to get me and just pretend by playing nice and not honest. So. Oh, it's so good. One of my favorite moments in your book, I thought it was a bold move that you made. You, you, you get us into our childhoods and rather than choosing a story of deep pain or trauma, you get it down to one Oreo cookie. It was a great moment. You're talking about a guy that you're working with that figured out that his wound and his relationship to food and all of that came down to his mom offering him a cookie instead of her affection. Um, your point being, we have to reckon with our childhoods in a way that we're not blaming and we're not all victimy, but it does have a profound impact. Uh, I'd like to hear more from you on that. Yeah. You know, I was a middle school pastor for, for many, many years and I would sit with parents all the time. And, you know, one of the lines I would always tell them is kids are very perceptive. They're just often crappy interpreters of reality. So they perceive mom and dad are fighting. And but it's the the problem isn't in their perception. The problem is in their interpretation. Mom and dad are fighting because of me. Mom mm-hmm. and dad are fighting because of me. And that's why they're getting a divorce. Well, that's not true, but it feels true. So so all of a sudden you have this story where this this kid skins his knee and he comes up and he's looking for affection. He can't name it. He just arms are open, crying, looking to be held, and he's handed an Oreo cookie. And, and, and it soothes him. And he, a couple months later, he says he, something similar happens. He gets, I think, beaten up by his sister and ends up like going to his mom again. And mom, sitting there with a cigarette, reading a newspaper, ends up handing him another cookie. And, and what he began to realize was he was being trained to not look for human interaction to soothe the sadness, but turn to food. And, if you, and the reason I wanted to name that is we all have socially acceptable places we go and that we were trained and shaped and formed to go to in our sadness, in our disappointment. And for many of us, you know, I mean, we, we, we go to food or we go to, for me, it's work. I'm a workaholic. I'm a recovering workaholic. And my addiction is as real as someone's addiction to alcohol or opioids or porn. My addiction how, has hurt how people. Many, how many days since your last uh, <laughs> job? Last, yeah, yeah, I mean, I would say I feel like I'm like three days sober. Okay. Um, and, yeah. and, and some of it is just in the violation of turning to work to find uh, some, or turning to someone in the professional world to kind of tell me I'm okay rather than staying in my role as a father and husband and human, um, looking for something else to escape. Um, and I can, and it can be, it could be something that's good like work or like food, something, or it could be experience. But oftentimes what we do is we, we siphon the good out of something that God created. What, what is, um, what is like 
C.S. Lewis basically allude to that evil is, it's just co-opted good. It's good yeah. that got co-opted. And, and so yeah, this Oreo, yeah. yeah, this, this Oreo got co-opted. Sex can get co-opted. All of these moments can get co-opted, but in real life, they're socially acceptable. So we're like, oh, that's great. You know, you went, you, you turned to, to, to buy some, some sneakers. Okay. That's fine. But why? Why? Did, why? And Amazon knows this. This is why they created the one click button. They know you live your life on the verge of being triggered, and we're going to make it so easy for you to put Jeff Bezos in space by just hitting the one click button. And so like, that's the piece that I feel like when we're not doing our work, man, we're going to be running. And some of it's been the stuff that we've been taught and trained uh, by our parents because they hadn't done their work. And this becomes the generational patterns that we start to hand down. This is how we handle. And this is why you see judgment get passed down or hatred get passed down or bitterness get passed down because that's how we were taught how to handle our sadness or disappointment or food issues until someone gets to the point and go, there's a better way. Why am I doing this? And it took my friend many, many decades, broken relationships when he struggled with intimacy because every time he felt sad, he ran to the refrigerator rather than to his spouse. And his spouse kept asking, why? And he didn't know until he started to go back and go, wow, this is how I interpreted a deep ache and a deep need. And I wish I would have received this. And now I might be 52, but I feel like a four-year-old again. And I've got to go back to that little boy within me and go, all right, here's the new map forward. Here's how we're going to begin to take these steps when I get triggered to not run to this hideout, but rather run to a place that can offer up true grace and true health and wholeness. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the work, but it, but that's the piece is, you know, I think Dallas Willard said it so, so well, grace is opposed to earning, but grace is never opposed to effort. And it takes effort for all of us to just do that work, to be kind to ourselves, to really kind of look at our childhoods, look at those messages that we need to relearn that we need to learn and that we desperately need to unlearn if we're going to move forward in health and wholeness. I think that's a, I think you've gotten to the crux of the matter, Steve. I, I, I guess in some ways my journey of chaplaincy was nothing more than learning to increase my capacity to sit in pain longer. So I think when I started, I probably had about a 10 second, maybe one minute capacity. And by the time I ended, my capacity was around six hours where I could sit with someone in pain. They, they were in pain. And I, I think it just as I listened to you lay out kind of that journey of freedom and, and the effort required, the, what, what we call, you know, you have to fight like hell is, is the simple way we say it. If you want freedom, like in, in, all, of, in all of history, all of the great freedom movements from Moses to Martin Luther King, the oppressor never hands power to the oppressed. The oppressed always have to fight like hell for it. And I think as Christians, we get confused because we talk so much about freedom, we don't realize we're actually not free. I, I, my theory is that for leaders, if it is a leadership podcast, it comes down to nothing more or less than our capacity to sit in pain, our own pain and others' pain. So you're describing like your friend, how quickly does he run to the fridge? What are some of your tools to 
increase your stamina for your own pain? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think when it comes to my kind of maybe playbook for this is, you know, typically on Sunday nights or Monday mornings, um, I just do kind of a, a like a, a little inventory on the past week. You know, some of the stuff that make us all human is that we all have been given 168 hours in a week. How we spend that, you know, just uh, it looks wildly different. But um, if I take Proverbs 4.23, it says, above all else, guard your heart for everything flows from it. And that word guard in Hebrew is the word natsar, and it literally means to like relentlessly protect what matters most. And the idea of like from the Hebrew culture was heart, leb, literally was like everything, your will, your desires, your, your need for affection, like your purpose, it, it all flowed from here. And so for me, I look back and kind of the four parts to this practice is I play it back. And I play back the week and I say, hey, is there a moment where I didn't guard my heart? And just what was underneath that? What was happening? And I felt minimized in this conversation. And so I kind of just like powered up a little bit or, hey, I, I, I felt like someone just looked down on me or someone, you know, said something and I just, man, it just, it, and I, and then I tried to not just spend time on the fruit side of what came out, but really what was going on before that? What was going on the day before that? What was my sleep patterns? What was my energy? What was, which just was like, what was my peace like? And I just try to write about that. And then I play it out. And I look about ahead in the next week and I go, hey, most likely I'm going to be in a situation where I feel stressed or overwhelmed or minimized or, or hungry or tired. And I kind of imagine, you know, Jesus. And again, I, I'm an athlete, you know, from, from playing basketball. Like I just imagine him, you know, as a coach, just kind of coach K or, you know, Popovich or just kind of coming up to me and just saying, Hey, how would you respond differently? You're in the same situation with that same coworker, that same moment on the freeway, that same moment with that person. How would you handle, how would you handle it differently? What would be true with you? And I just kind of visualize and play that out because mm. I, our, our life is going to experience pain. And I think what often happens is we just don't necessarily know how to do it. And this came out of when I played at Cal State Fullerton and play is not the right word. I sat at the bench, and, but I got free shoes. But we went and we played Kansas State. Division one basketball. That's, that's, right. not, yeah, that's yeah. not nothing. Yeah. Well, we played K-State. And we, I remember we walked into the locker room and, and the coach said, bow your heads. And I had been, you know, I was, I was praying that we would you know, I would somehow be able to witness to the team. And I thought we were going to pray, but he started to ask these questions. And he said, Hey, you're going into enemy territory right now. And what happens when you turn the ball over? How will you respond? Hey, what happens when they go from man to zone? How will you respond? What happens when you miss an easy shot? How will you respond? What happens when the ref starts to, you know, call a bad fall foul? How will you respond? And what he was doing was just vi helping us visualize, like, will you rise above or will you play small? And I think as I play it back and then start to play it out, I go, this is the kind of person I want to be driven by joy, driven by love, driven by a healthy assessment of who I am. And then thirdly, is I play it smart. And again, if everything's going to come out of my heart, I got I to gotta go, how am I refueling my heart this week? And I think as leaders, we don't give um, ourselves time to reflect on the pain. We just try and push through it. And the problem is that sometimes we think if I'm actually going to spend time, man, it's going to slow me down and slow my work yeah. down, slow my profits down, slow the people that I get to, to influence down. But the problem is, is an unchecked heart 
is going to check you at some point. And when it checks you, it will call checkmate. And there will be a moment where we've just seen it, where leaders have just not done their work. And they might be 46, they might be 38, they might be 52, they might be 65, but they do not finish because they didn't play it smart and recognize their heart. And then the last part of it is, again, Sunday night or Monday morning, the fourth part. I don't just play it back or play it out, I play it smart, but lastly, I play it honest. And I make the commitment to recognize that my feelings have movement to them. That's why they call it emotions, right? And so I make this declaration and this commitment that I will be emotionally honest. I'm not going to just say, I'm good. I'm okay. I'm going to do the work to be attuned to what's really going on in my heart. I'm feeling anxious right now. I feel really scared right now. I feel wildly stressed out. I feel like um, I feel this need to pretend or reach in this moment. And I'm going to not just play it honest, but I'm going to play it honest with the right people, not trying to run to a phone call. And again, I don't get this right all the time. Like I admitted, like, and my son called me out at 13, but like playing it, playing it honest to say, yeah, you're right. You found me out in that moment and I was wrong. And, and instead of trying to be defensive or minimize my sadness or my pain, really choosing to be emotionally honest. So play it back, play it out, play it smart, play it honest, I think will help you normalize pain, but it will also allow you to maximize the potential of what God wants to do in you and through you and for you. Gosh, there's, there's just so much you just laid out for us. I'm I'm just grappling in my own head with a couple of places to go. I think, I think what I want to land on that you said was, um, you really activate your imagination with Jesus as part of your experience. And I think for a lot of type A leaders, that feels weird to them. I just want to endorse how incredibly powerful imagination, like it's part of your whole body. I'm also hearing from you basically challenging the idea that productivity if you want to be more productive, then you work more on yourself. Like I, I love, I love what I heard there. But the thing that that blew me out of the water is you were sharing. I, I've never really given much consideration to was you just had a simple throwaway phrase that our emotions have movement. That's why they're called emotions. I've never considered just the simple idea that where are my emotions moving me to? That I think. That, that's a profound, simple way that all of us can notice our emotions uh, and then figure out the trajectory they've put us on. Let's, let's talk, if you would help me out with the 10% of my audience that doesn't know what they feel. It's, it's, maybe it's even more than 10%, but it's not uncommon when I'm doing my workshops and stuff. Someone very vulnerably will get up and say, how do I know what I'm feeling? Because they're just not naturally attuned to themselves. What would be a tip that you would offer them? Yeah, I'm just going to steal this from Jim Cress, who uh, was a counselor um, of mine and, you know, went to on-site and out in Nashville. And Jim Cress was my facilitator and um, he's, a, he's a real deal. But Jim just said, Steve, look at, your, look at your hand. And he's just like, just ask yourself, am I feeling sad? Am I feeling bad? Like shame? Am I feeling mad? Just angry? Am I feeling glad? Like overwhelmingly joy? Or am I feeling afraid? Fearful? And so just for me, like, that's just been something like that, just to, like in a, a little tool with my hands, like I go, ah, oh, man, I'm, I'm feeling, I'm feeling sad in this moment. What's underneath that? Or I'm feeling really, I feel moments of shame and shame is the shame storm for me can come really, really quickly. 
or man, yeah. I just, I just feel pissed. I'm so angry. That's not right. And again, it's just some little tool for me just to be aware. I feel really glad. Like I'm really excited for my friend or I feel really joyful in this moment. Like this is, this was amazing. Like I, that's a, that's a beautiful emotion. Why I just feel afraid. And so underneath it is that for me is like, I, um, I struggled for many, many years to get the 18 inches from my brain to my heart. You know, like I, I, I could not access it. I was afraid because I was, I was a sensitive kid and I feel like that tenderness got made fun of. So I, yeah. I shut that thing down and I, I, I just, I played off that Jordan energy, you know, and that anger. And so I think it's been this recovery of saying, it's okay. You're safe to be, bring your full self. And so for me, I just say, Hey, uh, in your, in your own time. Um, and I typically do it walking, walking movement for me helps me. It's almost like the, whatever cement or callousness around my heart begins just to break. And I can go, okay, why am I feeling this way? Okay. What's underneath that? And man, okay. If I let this drive the bus today, where do I think my sadness will want to take me? Or if I allow this shame to drive the, the bus today, how is that going to change my outlook with X, Y, and Z? And again, you, you start to see like all of that when some of those other drivers start taking us, that trajectory is going to lead us into a hideout. It's going to lead me into like insecurity, or it's going to lead me into how easy it is to create a narrative about somebody else. That's just actually because I didn't spend enough time to deal with the thing beneath the thing or the feelings that I was actually having within my heart. And because I didn't guard it and I guard a lot of things I mean, I guard my passwords. I guard my, my checking account. I guard my social media. I guard a lot. I, I wasn't taught how to guard my heart. And so yeah. naming these feelings and beginning to ask, okay, all right, if this drives me today, where's it going to take me? Is it going to take me to the man and the husband and the father and the leader and the pastor and the friend that I want to be? Or is it going to take me to something that feels a little bit less than? And from that, then I just got to make that decision. No, let's, let's, let's get to work. And maybe the next best right step is calling a friend. Maybe it's just uh, kind of, you know, making sure <laughs> I write this down to, to process this with my wife or process this with my counselor or mentor. Um, but again, that's the effort to not just acknowledge it, but then begin to say, I'm going to address it. And before it actually drives me into places or takes me into feelings or patterns that can lead to strongholds that will train wreck and sabotage the good that I, I want to be and, and the good I want to do in this life. Yeah. yeah. Just what I keep hearing from you is this, this strong intentionality you actually sacrifice time for this work. Um, the, the other thing I'm hearing, Steve, it feels like we have quite a bit in common. The whole, the sensitive childhood, the, the performance based front, then somewhere along the way we married, we each married one of the most emotionally available women we could find. Like you, you described Sarah as highly emotionally intuitive. I feel like I got the gift with Lisa of learning how to be a human being. Cause I believed I had to be something other. So is there's so much, isn't there? But particularly for faith leaders, we simply don't believe that it's okay to be human. We really do strive or there's a lot of pressure there. Oh yeah, man. I think I think um 
I think that for, for many of us, that as faith leaders, there's been a lot of, a lot of the pressures and, you know, 2020 just kind of was the great revealer, you know, and I think for some of us, we're like, oh, it's just like a little 5k. Um, but then we realized like, oh, it's a marathon. And then realized like, oh, we, oh, wait, this is an Ironman. And it's just been kind of asking stuff of us that I feel like that pressure has just, um, yeah. And, and here's the thing is people will say sports will teach you character. I don't know. Sports exposes character. Stress exposes character. Like when you feel pressure, um, that's when the fruit of the spirit should come out. But for me, when I feel pressure, that's when anger and that's when just bitterness, that's what has been coming out, competition. And I think for me in this is going, gosh, um, if I did not have the gift of Sarah or the gift of a, of a healthy group of friends or mentors or counselors, and I, I, I know, I know I would have train wrecked just because I didn't have the map and I didn't have the tools. And so again, it's, it's, it's doing the work and beginning to discover that you can take up, you have agency, you can take up space and that the feelings that you have, it's, it's, it's okay to name those and begin to do the work, but it's not necessarily has to be the thing that you just go, Oh, this just happened to me. And I, I'm just got to go. No, like there's a better way. And you know, that's, that's, that's been the heart of the book. That's been the heart of like, I think for both you and I as pastors and leaders is just trying to help people recognize like, Hey, I, what you're perceiving makes sense. How you're interpreting yeah. that, man, that's going to hold your life in check. And there's just a better way. There's a better way. And my favorite line that you said that you have like, literally like, bro, I steal it and I give you credit every time, but I just love it is a, a, a healthy spiritual director, a great counselor, a great pastor, and Jesus, they all want the same thing. They want yeah. you to experience love, peace, freedom, and grace. Like they, that's what they want for you. And anxiety or the past or all that other stuff, they want you to experience shame and brokenness and sadness and feeling stuck. But like the gift of healthy friends and healthy people in your life are going to say, is this going to lead you to more peace or more freedom? more love or more truth, like more grace. And, and that for me has just been a real gift going, is this going to allow me to step into that? Because when I step into that, I feel like Jesus is going, well done. Well done. There's a little bit more to go, but well done. Well done. Yeah. So, Yeah. I, I'd like to add a testimony to that. I think, I think the vision you're casting, a hearty amen for me, because the more I do this work, the more I see the moth and the flame of the old way. You know, how many more times do I want to go down the old path? And then the actual visceral freedom and peace from doing this work. What I'm finding interesting in my own life now is I always want death and burial and resurrection to be a one and done thing in my life. And I'm learning more and more that it's uh, a recurring journey with God. So, so like if, if people ask me a lot about chaplaincy and the whole, you know, how young I was when I did it and all of that. And I've, I've learned to summarize it. They really, the whole point of that program was to get you to the end of yourself as fast as possible. And the best way to get someone to the end of themselves is death, pain, and trauma day after day. Uh, also, I think a global poverty trip would also do it. Like there are different ways, but, but 
what I find in my life is I've gotten to the end of myself a number of times since that moment. Uh, 2011, as a lead pastor for me, I thought, I don't think I can go on anymore. We had had um, four young men in our church die in five years, and three out of the four were some of my closest friends. And so the chairman of my elders, my volunteer worship leader, and a man in my life group, all back to back. And I just thought, I can't, I can't bury friends. Some of them help them die because of my background. Some of them asked me to help them die. And, you know, helping a stranger die as a chaplain is a whole different ballgame than helping a dear friend. So 2011, I remember coming to the end of myself. I, uh, we moved into our church building after being portable for years. We were the first church in 25 years in our area to build. So we exploded. Four, we, we quadrupled in four years came to the end of myself then what, what i notice is i keep thinking oh now that's over with now now it's up and to the right and you've had a similar journey steve like you've had some pretty uh spectacular ends in your life um i wonder if you'd be willing to share about a recent one like what was it like for you and what hope are you finding yeah well i mean i think i think there's there's multiple ways to look at this because on the on the most human side for me is I am notorious. And I think every leader listening to this right now can go with movable finish lines. So like in a sense of, oh man, once I get that building done, life is going to slow down. Once I get through the, and then it's like, oh, well now we've just grown. And now, and now my dear friends died and I need another worship leader. It's like, Again, it's this constant sense of, of moving the line. And I, I think that has been one of the hardest pieces for me to navigate because, you know, just from a capacity standpoint, it, you can do it, but you are going to violate and push through some massive dashboard human indicators that you're not well. Yeah. The second thing I'd say is Dallas Willard has a great line. It says, if you want to know where what God's address is, it's at the end of your rope. Mm, right. And I yeah. think that's when we have that propensity, and I know I do, is to find my identity in what I do, find my identity in what people think about me, find my identity in something else. But when you get to those moments of 2011 that you experience, um, yeah, this, I'm at the end of my rope, that's where you experience God. And, and another way to say that the end of your rope is why the desert was so important. You know, there's a yeah. great line from a band that I, I appreciate called Brand New, but the line is, Jesus Christ, um, what did you do those three days that you were dead? Because this problem is going to last more than the weekend. And I think for some of us, we go, gosh, like I, I, I said yes to this, it should be over. And then all of a sudden, you just realize by admitting it, you've now just stepped into the process of becoming and having to be more honest with the pain of the past or the pain of your decisions or the reality. And that's where, that's where you find yourself in the desert. And, um, you know, probably the most recent one, you, you'd mentioned it at the, at the top, you know, when I was at Willow, um, you know, I stepped out of a, 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 something I didn't really see coming. And, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I ended up kind of stepping out pretty drastically. Um, I, I had 
found myself trying to go to some elders and really trying to go to some leaders about doing the right thing, what I thought was the right thing. And, and, and again, they, they, they had their ways to handle it the way that they wanted to. I just, it didn't line up in my spirit as the right way for my interpretation on how we needed to handle it. And in many ways, it felt like boomer sensibilities versus millennial sensibilities. But I, I just was like, I think there's a better way. This is what you have to do. But, you know, it's, it's interesting because I ended up not going on stage on a Sunday morning. I went home and, and then I resigned uh, by writing a blog post. And, and I think, I think two, two things. One was that resignation actually, I think, brought to the surface Oh, Houston, we have a problem. There, there's actually yeah. a problem here, yeah. and in some ways, that 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 was helpful. I think for some stuff to come out. Um, but secondly, you know, we were all just put in a really bad situation, and I I didn't get to say goodbye, and I wish there was another way, and I hated that the pain that my blog caused people because people were like. He bailed on us. And I didn't. I fought and I lost. But I, I, I just had this moment of like going, this is, this is what I have to do to live with integrity. But it was in response to the collateral damage from others. But my decisions created collateral damage. And so you find yourself in a, you know, kind of in for me in a desert season, literally and metaphorically. I, I live in Phoenix. But I'm, I, I felt deserted, felt like walking in the season, going the dream job didn't go the way that I thought it would go. My, my role, my love, my, my relation, it just, it, it didn't go. And, you know, there were moments of, of feeling a lot of these feelings and it, it really forced me to get to the thing beneath the thing. I got triggered really, really easily during this yeah. season. And this has been three years ago, but still there, there are moments where You'll hear something or somebody will call you or somebody will tweet at you or somebody will message you and, you know, they'll say something. And it all of a sudden, how quickly, just like you talked about the crazy Rob Four lady, how crazy those feelings can come of insecurity or of narratives that I just create false stories about others or just a longing to go escape in some hideout. And, and I think the desert you know, comes from that idea of the deserted place. You feel forsaken and forgotten. Yeah. But then you really discover, like, we all have these simple, tweetable phrases that we believe. You know, we love these cliches. But then they find themselves kind of having to face a, a nine-round, 12-round struggle, a fight of all fights. Is God really with me? Is yeah. God really for me? Does God really love me? Does God still really have a plan for me? Is God really in me when? I'm not teaching anywhere. It's got really for me in this moment, in this desert season. And you realize that the desert, Deuteronomy 8, was the gift to really shape your heart and form your heart to realize, like, I'm not Pharaoh. I'm not like Pharaoh. Like, I have something for you. And you have to trust me. And, and there was moments where I needed to relearn who God was and who Christ was, that I needed to learn a deeper level of the Spirit. And there was a lot I needed to unlearn and I recognize if I don't do this desert season well, I'll never do the promised land well. And so for me, it's taken me moments to have to learn to go, ah, man, I'm really sorry about this. And in other ways to go, I didn't know another way. 
and I did this and I'm sorry that it hurt you, but this is what and why I did what I did. But I think for all of us, we want to bypass the desert. We want to just jump. And I think there's, this is even in evangelical circles. Um, we love Good Friday and we love Easter Sunday, but we don't talk about Saturday. And much of our life is lived in the waiting and in the desert yeah. and in Saturday. And so we haven't trained people how to live well in Saturday. So when we find ourselves in that, what they call Holy Saturday, we find ourselves in those deserts, we often don't have the skills, the maps, the tools, the realities. So we then internalize and interpret what we're perceiving as, well, I must have screwed up. Something must have been wrong with yeah. me. And right. I think just yeah. in that sense of, no, 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 be kind to yourself, but allow yourself to be shaped and formed by the season and prepared for what God has, I believe, in store for you. So long answer, but those are kind of the thoughts as you were talking about the finishing and talking about the, that God's address and talking about just that just made me think about um, some of those, those points. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's so, I, I love the whole be kind to yourself, you know, some of the work I'm doing now is I'm brought into organizations and I have my 31 universal sources of anxiety. It's, 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 it's in the book I had 18 and I, I keep adding to them. It, it's, it, I'm just, I didn't realize how much freedom people would find when they tell me the case, they'll say, here's what's going on. What do you think? And I'll just highlight all the sources of anxiety at play. And I think what people find freeing is how they're like, oh, I'm not an idiot or it's not all my fault. Like they're taking responsibility. But I, I remember Steve in 2018 because I was, I was keenly following the whole situation. I remember you up on stage in that first family meeting. And I remember thinking, I'm not entirely sure that young fellow knew what all was going to be said when he was up there. And, and, you know, I was already doing some of this work. And so I found a power versus responsibility imbalance. Like you had all this responsibility, but no power, or I shouldn't say no power. You had some attributed power as a preacher, but probably very little hierarchical power in the organization to actually say, here's how things are going to be. There was also a cognitive dissonance that when there's the same set of facts but people are operating radically differently on the same set of data that puts you in cognitive dissonance. And so just to be aware for you and the people who feel hurt by you, just to be aware that all these dynamics are at play for everybody involved. Um, it does not excuse, like we always look back and give ourselves a C minus, I think on these situations, but that was your first time ever going through it. So that, that makes a lot of sense to me that there was a lot, you are navigating well beyond your own understanding. Yeah, I think that's really well said. And, you know, a similar way I would put it is when you had all the influence with no actual authority, you yeah. know, and so you, you had the influence of, you know, being the guy with the mic the majority of weekends, it had a lot of influence, you know, but the, the authority of not being an elder, not being, you know, decision maker, but it, in some ways it's, you know, like the the White House press secretary. Right. You know, you're getting out there and delivering information. You're a face for the administration or a face for the decision making, but not necessarily the one that's actually necessarily writing the scripts and right. And so that that did it. It it caused cognitive dissonance. And and you know, when you're in Bible college, um, you know, they're 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 often teaching you based on case studies from the previous decade. Yeah. You know, so so now you find yourself in a role and we weren't we weren't dealing with me too. We weren't dealing with abuse of power. There wasn't conversations about narcissism. 
there wasn't conversations, you know, so, so you're, you are right. Then you find yourself in the midst of it and with social media, with actual, just the, the stories. And, um, I, I think it was a, a, in front of people learning experience Mm -hmm. and, Um, yeah. And so I think part of it has been this going back, going, yeah, there's a few things I would have done radically different. And then there's a lot of things that I go, you know, like I, I know from the bottom of my heart, I did the best I could with what I had. And, and at the end of the day, like, um, I had to really realize my own assumptions, you know, like, why is it so hard to believe women? Right. Why is it so easy to protect a person or an institution? Right. Why is it so hard to, and I, again, these are just questions I, but when you had never really had them ever asked of you in, in like training and development, but you know that Bible colleges right now and leadership, they're all learning this stuff. They're all learning about, and thanks be to God, but there's a whole bunch of people who never had that, you know? So, yeah. so I think it's just, it's, it's again, that process of being kind. On um, that 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 process of being able to say, and here's the other thing is the church is really really good at saying I was wrong once. That's when we come into faith. But once we said yes to Christ, we struggle with ever saying I was wrong again. And yeah. I think part of this is the the part of why confession matters for us to say, hey, sure I got it wrong. You look at my kids and say, I took that phone call. I was wrong. I'm sorry. And yeah. here's what I need to do about it. And and so I think the more that we can get in tune with that. Um, the easier it gets when the stakes are higher for us to say, yeah, I, I did do that. And that's when repentance, that's when the beauty of goodness and grace and God's love can, can just rain down. Um, but I think it's easier for us to preserve and protect. Um, and that just, it doesn't, it doesn't ever end well. Yeah. I, I, the, the problem with our conversation is you keep saying things that make me want to explore more. Um, <laughs> Sorry, we're, bro. We're an hour in. No, man. We are an hour in. Oh my goodness. It's, you, it's so uh, good. I, I, I think what I just heard there that I, I want to make sure we capture, because um, Steve, you know, so many of our listeners are uh, running on fumes right now, just, you know, looking for hope and, uh, and I get it. Like, but, but you just cast a vision for this kind of work that you're inviting us to do gives us the freedom to take more responsibility for our mistakes rather than hide and blame. I, I want to pivot real quick. And then I've got two gauntlet questions. I'm not going to put you through the full gauntlet, just the, the, the miniature gauntlet will do. Um, but um, I was pretty blown away. I was following you on Instagram and man, I don't even remember what you posted, but your comment section lit up with people who have been hurt by the church. And that was the phrase they used. I've been hurt by the church. I've been wounded by the church. And as a pastor, uh, the, the amount of people that come into my church nowadays with that phrase and the amount of people leaving, leaving with that phrase that we have hurt them, it's, it's exponentially increased. You know, my job in the anxiety world, right, is one of the things I'm listening for is exaggerations and broad brush statements. That's an evidence that you're anxious. I love you put in the comment section. I don't know if you even remember this. Someone said, you know, the church wounded me and you responded and you said, you know, I used, I think you said, I used to say the church wounded me too. But now as I reflect on it, what I can actually say is it was five people that wounded me. And I found that to be a phenomenal statement from someone who could, um, you know, 
make a pretty compelling case that the so-called church wounded you. Um, talk to me about that. What was that move for you from the church wounded me to five people wounded me? Because I I hear a lot of freedom in that statement. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think I think you kind of nailed that with it's easy to have some broad brush strokes that we throw out, you know, and, and sometimes I've done that as a, as kind of this ability when I throw that out there, it feels so big and so unattainable that I don't actually have to deal with it. So, because it just, it's, it's like a blanket statement. The church hurt me. And so I think for me, it just goes, well, who in the church hurt me? Oh, it's five people. It's these five people. And, and, you know, now it gives me something to focus my energies on. I can focus in prayer and pray for these five people. I can do my work to have to practice to forgive these five people. I can pray that my heart would be ready for the day, if ever, that God might open the door yeah. for reconciliation. See, forgiveness is a solo sport. Reconciliation takes multiple people. And so um, for me, that kind of process just gave me more kind of um, personal responsibility, more self-leadership, more ownership. But it also allowed me to you know, um, make moves towards health and wholeness rather than making excuses that allowed me to stay stuck and kind of controlled by the past. That's what I love about it. Um, and how are you doing for time, Steve? We've probably got about another 10 minutes. I hear you. I'm great. Message is dinging. I just want to make no, sure I'm not you, stepping into another. No, you are great. I don't know how this, I, I seriously, when it comes to tech, I should know how to do this. I keep like, Oh, it's no problem. Okay. I just, I realize I'm running. No, you're great. We'd plan, but, but the two, the two reactions I have is uh, I feel the pressure as a pastor. One of the signs of anxiety is same species syndrome. A previous pastor hurt me. Therefore you're suspicious, right? People come into the church already suspicious of me and then seeing me through the lens of suspicion. But the other thing I, I want to have a word to pastors listening to this. I must have heard now from dozens of pastors, they'll say something like, in COVID, no matter what we decide, half of the church will be mad. And that to me is the same incorrect statement as the church hurt me, because what's actually true is probably the majority of church is fine. Maybe they have an opinion, but they're not sharing it. What's actually true is three times more than usual people speak up, but it's not half the church, right? Like, it's not true that 50% of my congregation is always mad, but when I say those statements, I believe them, and then I project onto my good people that. So, so the idea that truth can set you free and really getting clear on it was five people, not the church. It's like, like before COVID, I would hear from probably 30 people about what they thought about the church, and now I hear from about 100, and that's frustrating, but it's not 1,500, you know. Uh, yeah, so let me wrap that and let's crash into the gauntlet. Two questions, uh, because so much of what we've covered has kind of been gauntlet-esque. So here's the first one I'm fascinated by, Steve. I think one of the great secret struggles of preachers, particularly, is uh, we don't experience what we believe about God. Not all the way through. We're not hypocrites but there's this gap between what we proclaim about God and what we experience for ourselves. For me, 
the gap was always the love of God. I could proclaim it in a way that would make you cry. I struggled to experience it for myself. Is there a gap for you that you grapple with? That's really, really good. Um, I think, you know, I've seen people who can preach grace but are motivated by shame. Uh, I've seen, I've seen, seen people that, um, you know, are, 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 you know, kind of embody that gap. You know, I think sometimes what's really hard is the reason that most preachers, I think, struggle with that gap is because they're not self-aware enough to, to really kind of address that or, or name that. Um, you know, I, I think I've been really, really fortunate in a lot of ways. Um, because I didn't grow up in the church. So I didn't have a lot of baggage when it came, when I hear some of my friends from this or that, I, I, I had great women and men who I felt like discipled me. I, I had, I had some really, really great experiences. I think a lot of my pain has come from my childhood and from just from wounds. And I think the better question, uh, would be to ask my wife this. And I think her answer would to be to the gap would be in receiving love. And um, because so much of my existence felt uh, centered around my performance or in bringing pleasure to my parents, but not actually being grounded in walking in this sense that I'm worthy of love. And so I think for me, the work has really been um, you are loved, you are beloved, you are um, worthy to receive love. And I think in some ways, like um, the good that would often happen to me would get sabotaged as a kid. I didn't feel like I deserved good. And so good for, good for the congregation, good for, good, good for that. I didn't feel that I deserved good. So, so I think the gap for me has been in it's okay to receive good and it's okay to receive love. And my preaching is so much better when it comes from that place. Mm, that's a, that's a beautiful answer. And then the final question is when in your life do you feel most fully and completely loved? Man, that's a good one. I think the, the moments for me where I feel most just and completely loved are moments where someone has, uh, or I've hurt someone. And they haven't given up on me or when I have been told the truth, you know, um, you know, I think that there's, there's something in me that loves the development side or that loves the, the sense that they are for me, even when I screw up, I feel loved. And then I think the second piece is just the, the sense of touch, whether it's my wife just grabbing my hand and walking in the redwoods or rocking in the desert or walking in the, you know, in the, in a beach or a moment where just, uh, my, my kids just come in to snuggle, like, and it's nothing that I've done. I think that's why I'm a dog guy. Like I, I had this dog, Steve, that his name was biscuit. We just had to put her, put him down, but that dog was a therapy dog. Didn't, he didn't care yeah. if I preached. He didn't care if I did anything that was worthy of good. But this cockapoo would not leave my side. This cockapoo at any moment would try and lick my teeth, which was so weird. And, you know, but this dog just was this reminder of like, you deserve this. 
You deserve this. And so there was just this moment of I'd wake up and he, every night he would sneak up in the middle of the night and just kind of lay between my legs. And I just would like in the middle of the night, wake up going, he did it again, dog. But like, he just wanted to be close. And, and again, nothing that I did, I wasn't worthy of it. And he just uh, did. And so I think the moments of when someone can tell me the truth and showcase grace when my wife or my kids just can just look me in the eye or hold my hand or that, that, that beautiful, dumb little pooch named Biscuit that just meant more than, than I than probably should have, but just was a, was a really, really dear gift from, from above. People listen to this podcast because they're on the same quest that you and I are on. So I just want to close by telling my listeners that, you know, we keep banging this gong, that taking this journey, getting to the end of yourself, figuring out what makes you tick, chasing freedom, and peace, it's so worth it. And I'm, I'm continually on the hunt for quality guides. Uh, it, it's weird for me now that I've had a book come out and, and I'm doing this professionally, it's weird to be seen as an expert in something that I feel like I'm still learning about. It's partly why I guess the, one of the greatest delights of my last couple of years has been who I've gotten to meet. Steve Card is one of those guys. Um, I can just testify that he, he is exactly what you're hearing on this show. Um, his book, The Thing Beneath the Thing, it, it's just one of those books that you just need to read. It's worth taking a couple of days out of your life. Uh, or those of you who like to sip slowly, like prioritize this work. Because Steve, Steve has done something unique in his contribution to this field. Uh, you know, obviously I'm into family systems. People uh, talk about Enneagram. What Steve has done is make something that feels so ethereal he's made it very accessible but he has not made it simple he's not dumbed anything down he's just boiled it down to the essence so you can read his book he has a guide through it on um some practices you can have he has some ways to help you identify what's going on it's it's a gem of a book steve for people who want more from you is there a way that they can reach out to you yeah well thanks for those words um yeah feel free you can go to stevecarter.org or um, I'm, I'm on Facebook and Instagram and, and Twitter and just like, you know, you, Steve, we try to be pretty accessible to people. And so that's just at Steve Ryan Carter, at Steve Ryan Carter. Great. All right. Thanks. Thanks very much. This this was a just a delight for me. This has made my day. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much, man. Appreciate you, brother. For more resources, visit stevecuswords.com or missyoualliance.org.